Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come before you in worship. We thank you for the reconciliation we have to you through the sacrifice your son made and the privilege of having your word preached like this and that it sanctifies us, Lord. And I pray for understanding this morning and encouragement. Now many people have experienced miscarriages or will encounter people who have experienced miscarriages or perhaps even um, the loss of children following birth. And so I pray, Lord, we'd be equipped both to be encouraged should that happen to us or encourage others that we might encounter in that situation. I think there's wonderful truths here, not just regarding babies going to heaven, but regarding uh, your word that we should keep with us in general, Lord. And so I do pray for that reality for us. I ask that you'd use me just to speak to your people. I know that we have many things going on in our lives, and so help us to be undistracted and attentive to what you would say to us. And just use me as your vessel to rightly deliver your word, Lord. And if there's anything that's not in my notes that you'd have me say to your people, please bring that to mind. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the title this morning's sermon is Do Babies Go to Heaven When They Die? So hopefully after the last couple sermons, we can answer this affirmatively. On Sunday mornings, we paused our verse-by-verse study through Luke's gospel for a few sermons on babies going to heaven. We will find ourselves back in Luke next Sunday. And so we paused because in Luke 18, 15, Jesus declared that the kingdom of God belongs to babies and to those like babies, which we'll talk more about next week. But I want to have a couple sermons that help us understand why Jesus made that declaration, or in other words, a few sermons that lay the foundation for understanding that wonderful statement. So this morning's sermon is going to build off the previous sermons. Uh, In fact, I I don't think it would be too much to say that I wouldn't even be able to preach this sermon this morning if not for the foundation that these previous sermons laid. And so I want to briefly review what we've learned up to this point. The first sermon was titled, Are Children Innocent? And that sermon, like the title suggests, was about babies being innocent or just as importantly, why exactly babies are innocent. The second sermon was titled The Biblical Age of Accountability, and that sermon was about babies not being able to choose between good and evil until they reach a certain age. The third sermon last week was titled Sin is Not Imputed Where There Is No Law. And so we talked about how babies are the picture of selfishness. We wouldn't say that they don't do anything wrong, so it begs the question essentially why they can do things wrong but it not be held against them. And so that third sermon was about their sin not being imputed to them. Now here's the thing. If all these things are true, if babies are innocent, if they can't choose between good and evil, if they haven't reached the age of accountability, if sin is not imputed to them, then we should be able to see a few saved babies in the Bible. And we do, and this brings us to lesson one. There are saved babies in the Bible. There are saved babies in the Bible. Perhaps you can think of a couple of them. But I will say this, there are not many saved babies in the Bible. So I don't want you to focus on the fact that there aren't many of them. I just want you to focus on the fact that there is at least one. In other words, even if there was only one saved baby in the Bible, that alone would be incredibly significant because that would tell us that babies can, in fact, be saved. So the first example is David. In Psalm 22.10, he wrote, On you, speaking to God, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So David didn't say that he knew God. He didn't say that he had faith in God, both of which would be impossibilities for a baby, but he did make two points. First, he said that he was cast on God from his birth, or that God had been his God from his birth, which is to say it sounds like he was saved when he was born. But then he backs up even further to when he was in the womb, and he says that God had been his God when he was in the womb. To say that God is someone's God, that's Old Testament language, or Old Testament salvific language. And so David said that he was saved before he was born. The second example is the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.5, God said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God said two things to Jeremiah. The second, doesn't ne- the second thing that God said to Jeremiah doesn't necessarily mean Jeremiah was saved, and I'll deal with that first. So God said, Before you were born, I consecrated you. 
or some translations such as the king james and new king james say sanctified which means set apart that's how it's translated in the niv and that simply means as we we've talked about before that holy uh, sanctified consecrated all means set apart and so it's just to say that god had set jeremiah apart to be a prophet which is what he said in the verse too before i formed you in the womb i knew before you were born i consecrated you i appointed you to be a prophet to the nation so god had set jeremiah apart for that ministry but the beginning of the verse is a significant part god said before i formed you in the womb i knew you and again that's south old testament salvific language but not even really just old testament because then that same language is carried forward in the new testament to describe saved individuals for example when paul was speaking to the galatians in chapter 4 verse 9 he says now that you have come to know god or rather to be known by god to be known by god is to be saved and probably one of the most uh, familiar examples making this point or the other side of this point is that when god doesn't know us when the lord doesn't know us that's evidence that we're not saved what does jesus famously say in those terrifying verses to unbelievers on the day of judgment depart from me i never knew you matthew 7 23 you workers of lawlessness also you might have noticed that god said he knew jeremiah before forming him in the womb this is what we call foreknowledge which we also see in the new testament ephesians 1 4 god chose us in christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him or first peter 1 2 those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of god that god foreknew us foreknowledge of god the father and so the idea is just like god foreknew and chose us in christ before the foundation of the world god foreknew and chose jeremiah unto salvation before he was even in the womb now the third and probably the most well-known example of a saved baby in scripture is whom yeah john the baptist that's probably i, I just because it's so unique that's the one that i thought would probably come to mind first so luke 1 15 the angel gabriel said uh that john will be great before the lord he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb so even while in the womb john would be filled with the holy spirit wayne grudem said we might say that john the baptist was born again before he was born now we're not saved by works works are the evidence of salvation and we get to see the evidence of john's salvation later when he came in contact well while still in elizabeth's womb with mary who was carrying jesus at that time john or luke 141 says when elizabeth john's mother heard the greeting of mary the baby john leaped in her womb and elizabeth herself then was filled with the holy spirit and so because salvation always produces fruit we get evidence of john's salvation here where he leapt in the womb simply at the hearing that jesus was near there's one more incredible example not just of a saved baby but really an example of babies going to heaven when they die and this is in second samuel 12 if you're still there this account probably more than any other is the one that people cling to when they've lost a child and they want confidence that they're going to see that child again and for good reason it's a very strong case for that so we're going to read through the passage quickly and then i'll share my thoughts toward the end so here's the background david has committed adultery with bathsheba he had her husband uriah murdered he hides his sin until nathan the prophet comes and confronts him and then he repents but even upon his repentance he learns that he is forgiven but there's going to be consequences for his sin and one of the consequences is the death of this child of adultery so we're going to pick up in second samuel 12 verse 14 nathan says to david nevertheless because by this deed the sin you've committed you have utterly scorned the lord and the child who is born to you shall die so david receives this news the child will die and then skip to verse 16 to see his response david therefore seeks god on behalf of the child he fasted he wept or fasted excuse me not wept fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground but he they would not 
be able to raise him up because he refused to allow that to happen. He would not eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David, David had not received this news yet, the servants of David were afraid to tell David that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. And so they looked on and recognized that if David was behaving this way while the child was alive, or if he looked as though he's grieving this much, the, the fasting, laying on his uh, face all night, then how much worse will things be for him if he receives the news that the child is dead? Or in other words, they're thinking if David is this upset at the possibility of the child dying, how much worse is it going to be when he learns that the child is dead? He could even do something drastic to himself. Now, that's not to say that David was suicidal, but that's what his servants thought he might be. So he receives the news. Look at verse 19. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And then David surprises them. He arises from the earth. He washes himself. He anoints himself. He changes his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord. He even worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Now, a child's death might be the most painful experience for anyone to to go through. I remember when my brother had died and I was speaking to a father because I didn't have any children at that time myself, and he was asking how my parents were doing. And when I shared how my parents were struggling, he shared with me a, a conversation that I still remember pretty vividly, how losing a child would be every parent's, or the exact words he used were, having to bury a child is every parent's worst nightmare. And now having plenty of children of my own, I can understand why it was so terrible for my parents to have to go through that. Now, that's what David had to go through. But interestingly, if I had, and so we would expect following the child's death, David to be filled with anguish, or for him to look like a terribly tormented and suffering individual upon the loss of this child, and made even worse by the reality that it was his sin, that that this child's death was a consequence of his sin. But now I want to ask you this, after the child died, what word would you use to describe David? I wouldn't use the word tormented. I would not use the word anguished. I might use those words to describe David prior to the child's death. Maybe use the word suffering prior to the child's death. But for me, if I have to use just one word, and you might have a different opinion to describe David following the child's death, it would be the word peaceful. He looks peaceful to me. He did the opposite of what the servants expected. Instead of doing himself harm, and they were probably becoming concerned for David's health, now he cares for himself. He cleans himself up. He washes. He asks for food to be set before him. We're even told in verse 20 that he went into the house and he worshipped the house of the Lord, I mean. And this confused the servants, understandably. Look at verse 21. The servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted, you wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and you ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now that the child is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then these famous words here, ones you might circle, underline, highlight to be able to share with someone who loses a child. I shall go to him, I shall go to the child, but the child will not return to me. And this brings us to lesson two. David knew his baby would be in heaven. Lesson two, David knew his baby would be in heaven. Now, there are times that people speak optimistically or hopefully about something. Hopefully that God might answer a prayer, hopeful that someone might get better. Going out to battle, hopeful that someone might be able to win the battle. David does not write hopefully here or speak hopefully. He speaks certainly. He doesn't say, I hope I will see the child again. He says, I shall go to him. 
He didn't encourage himself, in other words, with words that were a possibility. He encouraged himself with words that were a certainty. Now, there's some different views of this account, which I hope to, to discredit, or really one alternative view to this account, which I hope to discredit. And the alternative view is that David essentially was not saying that he would see his child in heaven, but simply that David would go to the grave like this child went to the grave. Or essentially, David is saying, my child died and I shall die too. In other words, some people think David was simply saying that he was going to join this child in death versus joining this child in heaven. And there's four reasons that I'm convinced this argument is wrong, and I want to go through them so we can be confident if we're ever in David's place and we lose a child, or if we ever find someone in David's place who's lost a child and we have the opportunity to minister to them. So I hope this would equip you to be able to counsel people really during one of the darkest valleys that people might experience on this side of heaven. So first, if David only meant that he was going to die someday like his son, that doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense for him to say something so blatantly obvious because, of course, he's going to die someday too. Second, one of the main reasons that some people think David was only saying he would join his son in death or in the grave is that, as we've discussed before, the next life, at least in the Old Testament, was fairly veiled or shadowy. You don't hear people talking about heaven and hell. You hear them talking about the grave, the pit, um, Sheol, or what we know as Hades. And so because the next life was veiled or shadowy in the Old Testament, people assume that that's simply what David was talking about, going to the grave or the pit or Sheol, like other people did. But there's few people in the Old Testament who had the revelation of God, of spiritual matters, or even of the next life, like David did. And so when David thought about the next life, he thought about going to heaven. He wrote about it in probably the most well-known psalm, Psalm, 33, psalm 23. In verse 6, he said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and what? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so David knew that upon death, he was going to be going to heaven, or he was going to be going to the house of the Lord and spending eternity with the Lord. So David knew that death was not simply going to the grave. For him, it was going to heaven, and he expected his baby to be there with him. Now, the third reason it's wrong to think that David simply thought that he would join his son in death is the context. So prior to the son's death, we see David mourning, experiencing significant grief, and he encourages himself with the reality that he's going to see this son again. But what would not have been comforting for David? It would not have been comforting for David to simply say, my son died and I'm going to die too. My son went to the grave and I'm going to go to the grave too. So if that argument was correct, we wouldn't see David being encouraged by the words that he said. It was in fact the reality of what he said that he was going to heaven and would see his child there that allowed him to pick himself up and experience this dramatic change and then return to the normal routine of life. Now, the fourth reason that it's wrong to think that David simply expected to join the child in death is revealed when we contrast David's response to this child's death with David's response to another child's death, in particular, Absalom's death. And so if you want to go a few chapters ahead to 2 Samuel 18... And so just while you turn there to repeat something I shared a few times during this series, my responsibility to equip the saints with the work of the ministry, I hope you're not being equipped for something you ever have to experience. I hope whether through, even if just miscarriage, I hope that's not something anyone here has to experience. But more than likely, there are people in this room, unmarried, who are going to have children and then know what that's like to learn that they have lost that child. 
But even if that wasn't the case for you, you need to be equipped to minister to people who do experience that painful situation, and I want you to have the tools or resources to do so. It could be your neighbor, it could be a coworker, it could be some unbeliever that you run into who's just confused when they have lost a child and know that you're a Christian and hope that you have answers for them, and you need to be able to do something besides kind of look at them blindly or fumble for words. These are the resources that I hope you have with you to open to and then to take these people to and say, well, you're not, you've lost a child. There's an individual, a famous one. You would even know him as the man who killed Goliath that lost a child in Scripture. And let me go ahead and show you what happened with him or how he encouraged himself with this reality that he was going to see this child again, that this child went to heaven. So can I first encourage you that your child has gone to heaven? And then say, are you, and if it's an unbeliever, unchurched person, are you certain that you're going to go to heaven someday? And then they say yes. And then you say, well, why are you confident you're going to go to heaven? And then when they say, because I'm a good person, then you know they need to hear the gospel, right? And then hopefully you have the opportunity to share that with them. Say, well, if you would like to see your child again, may I tell you about Jesus and what he has done for us? And so just to have these tools can allow us to respond to people, share the gospel with them, or help them during those incredibly dark seasons that they experience after losing a child. Now, if you've turned there in 2 Samuel 18, here's the background. David had a son named Absalom. He was a murderer. He murdered, among others, his own half-brother, Amnon, when Amnon raped Absalom's, Amnon raped his half-sister, Absalom's full sister, Tamar, he was a usurper. He manipulated the people, stole the throne from David. He was an adulterer. He took David's wives. He had his way with them on the rooftop before the, before the people of the nation. And it's not that God could not or would not forgive a man like Absalom. I mean, he's forgiven worse people, if you can imagine that, when he forgave Manasseh or probably some of the people in Nineveh. But the fact is that Absalom, at least considering what we have in God's word about him, died as wickedly as he lived. There's no sign of humility, even say nothing about any repentance with him. So if David expected Absalom to simply go to the grave or the pit or Sheol when he died, perhaps to join his brother or even by this time Amnon or the child of adultery or even other uh, sons or kids that David might have lost, David would have encouraged himself or said something like this, Absalom is dead. Finally, the rebellion is over. The land is at peace, and I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, he would have said something that was pretty similar to what he said following the death of the child of adultery. Instead, look in 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. The king was deeply moved. This is when David learns that Absalom has died. The king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The Hebrew word for deeply moved is regaz, and it implies a violent trembling. The same exact Hebrew word is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe earthquakes taking place. So that's how violently David is trembling or shaking at this news or as he sobs uncontrollably like this before all the people who are coming into the city following the victory. So basically, David's completely undone at his son's death. Go to chapter 19, verse 1. It was told Joab, David's great and violent general, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Verse 2, notice this. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, which doesn't mean stole as in theft, but means they snuck into the city that day as people would steal or sneak in who were ashamed when they flee in battle. Now, this is bad. Verse 33 says that David is in this chamber over the gate of the city, which would be the place that all of the soldiers and probably some number of other people were entering following this great victory because the context for this is David had to flee with his mighty men 
And Absalom had taken the throne from David and in the process also acquired the army of Israel. And then in a truly unfathomable event, David had to go to war against the army of Israel that at that time was being led by his own son. And in fact, one thing that probably helps, if you look in chapter 18, verse 5 with me briefly, when they're going to go to war, when David's going to go to war or battle against his own son, he tells his mighty men, 2 Samuel 18, verse 5, the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai before this battle, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Another indication of David's weakness as a father, viewing his children too sentimentally, unable to deal with them as they deserve to be dealt with because of the crimes that Absalom committed. He deserved death. But even here we see David saying something, deal gently with, does he even call him the young man or like child in some translations? He never was able to really fathom the wickedness of his kids, more than likely probably because of the wickedness that David himself had engaged in. But here's my point. When David gives this command for his son Absalom to be dealt with so gently, it's not just because he wanted his son to remain alive. That's part of it, but he wanted his son to remain alive because he knew where his son was going to go if he died. And it wasn't going to be the same place as the child of adultery, and it was not going to be the same place that David was going to go when he died. And in fact, if you look back at the verse in 2 Samuel 18, verse 33, David said, would I had died instead of you? Why do you think David wanted to die in his son's place? More than likely because he wanted Absalom to be able to live longer so that he could turn his life around. If you look in 2 Samuel 19, going one verse further, or actually you can see it says the people were ashamed in verse 3 when they come in from the battle. All of the joy of this victory was robbed from the people because they had to listen to David sob like this. His grieving continues in verse 4. He co- the king covered his face. The, the king cried with a loud voice, and he continues just unrelentingly, oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And it goes on like this. I don't know how long it took for all of the people to walk into the city, but I'm guessing it must have been hours that David, David is undone and just controlling and, and sobbing uncontrollably like this. Now, for David, he never said, I shall go to him, like he did with the other child. He must have known better than anyone else that they're going to, these two children are going to two different places, and David is not going to the same place that Absalom is going He knew better than anyone that he would not see Absalom again. As much as heaven might have been veiled or shadowing the Old Testament with David being one of the few people who had an understanding of it, we don't have, with the exception of Daniel, I think it's in Daniel 12 too, where it says that the righteous will be resurrected to eternal life and the unrighteous to eternal punishment. But we don't really have any any evidence of David understanding eternal damnation. But my suspicion is, If he knew about heaven, he probably had some understanding of hell, and he knew that Absalom deserved it. And so David grieved for Absalom the same way that a parent during the church age familiar with hell would grieve for an unbelieving child who perishes. And then second, in verse 33, he says, would I had died instead of you? Could I not have died in your place, Absalom? If only I could have died and you could have lived so that you would have had time to repent, so you would have had time to turn from the Lord, turn away from these horrendous sins that you have committed. Now, even if we are convinced that babies go to heaven, which I hope is the case for all of you by this point after these sermons, we're still left with a dilemma. And it could be a dilemma that has been nagging at you since we began this series. And it's this. We know that we're saved by grace through faith, And we believe unborn babies go to heaven, and it is super difficult to put those two together. Here's the dilemma. We believe, or we know, that we're saved by grace through faith, and we believe, or even we know, that babies go to heaven. So there's only two possibilities, two possibilities when putting these truths together. 
One possibility is unborn babies exercise saving faith or unborn babies exercise faith to be saved. The other possibility is unborn babies do not exercise saving faith. Now, I don't see how unborn babies could exercise saving faith, so I go with a second possibility, and this brings us to lesson three. Babies can go to heaven without exercising personal faith. Babies go to heaven without exercising personal faith. I'm going to share verses with you that possibly support this. And when I'm talking, and when I'm preaching to you, can I just give me your attention so I can be candid with you for a moment? I don't like to preach in possibilities. I don't like to preach and say things like probably, or more than likely, or it seems like. I like to study (laughs) as long as I need to and put in as many hours and look at as many commentaries as I need to to be able to stand here and tell you this is how it is. But I have to say probably to you if I'm going to be honest. I have to say these are verses that possibly support this, and I say possibly because we know babies go to heaven when they die, but we don't know exactly how they get there without exercising personal faith. So all I can do is give you the verses that I believe support this. This is my best effort. And here's the thing. There are some brilliant individuals that I'm able to look at. You don't have to get my suspicion about this. I can look at brilliant commentators, great theologians to see what they have to say. And in fact, I'll give you a little window or insight into my studying. This is what it looks like. I have lots of commentaries, but I commonly use four for each sermon. And assuming those four commentaries, I want to look at at least four commentaries on every passage. And then assuming that I can understand the passage well, which is frequently the case, I don't look at any other commentaries. Now, as you know, even just looking at four commentators, commentaries or commentators generally has us moving through passages pretty slowly. So if I look at beyond four, we might be in verses for, you know, three months at a time. Now, when I encounter something that is harder to understand, or if I've looked at four commentaries and I don't believe that I've come to a good, solid grasp of that material, then I move beyond four commentaries, and I generally keep looking at subsequent commentaries until I've looked at enough to fully understand a situation. And in this situation, no matter how many commentaries I look at, I cannot say with certainty how babies can go to heaven without exercising saving faith. Now, to be clear, I have not been looking at more commentaries to see whether babies do go to heaven. That is a very settled issue for me based on the previous sermons or much of the material I've shared with you, and there's even an amount of material that I've cut out, but I didn't want this to go on that much longer. So it is a settled issue for me that babies do go to heaven based on what you've heard in the previous sermons. I've been looking at additional commentaries to see how babies go to heaven when they die when they can't exercise saving faith. And I am not seeing commentaries that say, I don't see commentaries that say this, babies go to heaven because they believe, or babies go to heaven because they exercise saving faith. Part of the reason I'm convinced babies who die go to heaven without exercising saving faith is because of the commentaries that have said as much, and I'll share a few of the quotes with you from them. First, Wayne Grudem, who authored probably the premier systematic theology book, wrote, and I quote, and please try not to tune out even though this is a somewhat lengthy quote. I have even removed parts of it to make it more concise. So Wayne Grudem said in his systematic theology book, It certainly is possible for God to bring regeneration, that is, new spiritual life, to an infant even before he or she is born. God is able to save infants in an unusual way apart from their hearing and understanding the gospel by bringing regeneration to them very early, sometimes even before birth. This regeneration is probably also followed at once by an emerging intuitive awareness of God and trust in him at an extremely early age, but this is something we simply cannot understand. When infants are born, they show an instinctive trust in their mothers 
and we should insist that they would also have an intuitive awareness of God, and if God gives it, an intuitive ability to trust in him as well, close quote. Now, the second quote I want to share with you, it's going to require a quick reading of Romans 10. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but I'm going to read through it pretty quickly just so that you can get the gist of it because the second commentator refers to it, and that's John Calvin. Now, Romans 10 contains one of the clearest descriptions of how people are saved, or I could say that people are saved by hearing the gospel, or I could say a clear discussion of the most common way people are saved. So Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He begins with that truth, and then he works back from it. And so next he says, how then will they call on him of whom they haven't believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear of him without someone preaching about him or about the Lord to them? How are they to preach? How is anyone to preach unless people are, they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then two verses later, Romans 10, 17, Paul says, so then faith comes from hearing. The faith that saves is what he means in hearing from the word of Christ, which is another name for the gospel. And so the faith necessary for salvation comes from hearing the gospel. And that is the common way that people are saved. But I would argue that it's not the only way. So here's the second quote from John Calvin's Institutes. And I wanted to read Romans 10 because he references it in this quote. So another long quote, and I'd ask you to try not to tune out. So John Calvin says, Faith comes by hearing, the use of which infants have not yet obtained. Nor can they be fit to know God, but in Romans 10, Paul is only describing the usual way the Lord calls his people, and he is not laying down a rule for which no other method can be substituted. Many infants God certainly has called and endued with the true knowledge of himself by internal means, in other words, working in their hearts, by the illumination of the Spirit without the intervention of preaching. Since some infants whom death hurries away in the very first moments of their lives pass into life eternal, they are certainly admitted to behold the immediate presence of God. I would not rashly affirm that they are endued. And then he says this, John Calvin says, I would not rashly affirm that those infants who die and are ushered into the presence of God are endued with the same faith which we experience. So, two points. First, John Calvin says that Romans 10 describes the common way people are saved, but not the way that babies are saved. And I'd argue in a moment uh, another category could be added to this. And then second, he said the babies are regenerated but without the faith that adults have. Now, the obvious question is, what verses can this be based on? Now, I'm going to share a few verses this week, and then there will be a few more verses next week when we turn back to Luke 18. So for now, one verse I'll introduce to you. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 4.10. Paul says, God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Just one more time. God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, it's significant that it doesn't say God is the Savior of all people who believe. It says God is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe, which implies what? That there could be some saved who haven't believed. And this could include everyone, I would say, who, through no fault of their own, cannot make the mental assent to believe. Let me say this one more time. We okay up there? Okay. I just, we'll pray real quick. I don't know, whenever I hear a child's head slammed, it always concerns me, and that sounded like a head. Can't, you're, if you're a parent, you recognize when it's a child's head. You just recognize it's a head that slammed. So I think that was Willow. Father, we just, we pray for Willow that, that she's fine and that it's nothing serious. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's like whenever we're in our house and a child falls or there's a lounge slam, Katie's like, it was a child's head. It was a child's head. <laughs> there's times I've watched a child land on their feet, and Katie's like, the child landed on their head. 
And I'm like, I saw the child land on the feet. She's like, no, it's their head. So I don't even argue with her anymore. I'm like, fine, they landed on their head. It's their head. <laughs> okay, so 1 Timothy 4.10, God's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And just to say this clearly, this can include everyone who through no fault of their own cannot make the mental assent to believe or in other words are unable, again, through no fault of their own, to exercise saving faith. And I'd put two groups in this special category of salvation, and that would be infants and the mentally handicapped. I'm going to talk more about the mentally handicapped next week because I think it fits super well in Luke 18 where Jesus talks about children being saved and those like children, right? Which is how we commonly describe maybe Down syndrome people. If you talk to people familiar with them, they'll say that they're, they're like a child. So I thought it worked much better with next Sunday's sermon. But for now, I just want to say this. God could mercifully apply Christ's sacrifice to these people in special categories of salvation. And I want to be perfectly clear about what I am, and I'm not, I just felt myself during this sermon teetering on this edge of trying to make sure I don't go too far and say something that I don't think Scripture says. And so I want to be perfectly clear about what I am and I'm not saying. I am talking about individuals unable to exercise saving faith and God applying Christ's sacrifice to them. I am not talking about anyone being saved apart from Christ's sacrifice. And there's a major distinction between that. I am still saying that those born of women or born with original sin have Christ's sacrifice mercifully applied by God to them, but I'm not discussing anyone being saved apart from or independent of Christ's sacrifice. So how do we have any verses that allow us to believe God could extend Christ's sacrifice to people who have not exercised personal faith? And this brings us to lesson four. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all to be saved. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all to be saved. And again, I want to be particularly clear with, with this lesson. Notice what this lesson does and does not say. The lesson says that Jesus' sacrifice could pay for everyone's, or could have paid for everyone's sins and reconciled everyone to God. I don't think any of us would ever say that Christ's sacrifice was inadequate to save everyone. We would never say more people could have been saved if only Jesus' sacrifice had been greater. Nobody would say that. But the lesson does not say that Jesus' sacrifice does save everyone. So listen to these verses describing the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice for all. 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and our being believers. That's who John's talking about. Jesus is the propitiation for our. He includes himself in the elect or the, peop- the community of faith or the saved. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So when John says propitiation for our sins, our being believers, but then he moves beyond that and says Jesus' death is sufficient for the whole world. John 1.29, John said, Behold, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that verse we know is not as literal as it sounds, or nobody would what? Nobody would go to hell, exactly. So what did John mean? He meant that Jesus' sacrifice was, in fact, sufficient to take away the sins of the world, if everyone believed, but everyone doesn't. Now, I don't want to comment on every single verse, but here's a few more making this point. John six fifty one. Jesus said, the bread that I will give for the life of the world, and he meant eternal life of the world is my flesh. Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Jesus died for all. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. 1 Timothy 2.6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Hebrews 2.9, by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. 2 Peter 2.1, false teachers deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. One more time, say I'm going to comment on this verse. I think it can sound a little more confusing. 2 Peter 2.1, false teachers deny the master, referring to God, 
who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So you have a verse where Peter says that there are false teachers who were bought by Christ. Now, at first you could think, oh, well, that just means that they were false teachers and then they repented and that's why they're bought by Christ. But it doesn't say that because then it says, who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. These are unsaved false teachers who go to hell. So how do we explain this verse saying that God has bought them or redeemed these false teachers? Right after that, Peter said they brought this swift destruction upon themselves, meaning they experience eternal torment. The verse is asserting the extensiveness of the redemption, that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient even to save these false teachers who did not end up being saved because they did not repent, but had they repented, could have been saved. Now, here's the application for babies going to heaven. The fact that Jesus' death is sufficient for everyone's sins at least allows for the possibility of God applying that payment to those who were not capable of believing, such as infants, and I would argue the mentally handicapped, again, who we'll talk about more next week. And with that, here's the final quote. That gives you the background for this final quote from gotquestions.org. It says, what about babies and young children who never attain the ability to make a personal choice to believe in Jesus. If someone is truly incapable of making a decision for or against Christ, then that one is extended God's mercy. Another post it could, on God questions. It could very well be that God, in his grace, applies the sacrifice of Christ to babies who die. We know that Christ's blood is sufficient for such a thing. After all, Jesus died for the sins of the world. Now, let me be clear about something. When I'm talking about people being unable to exercise personal faith, perhaps your minds go to people who haven't heard the gospel. And so then you say, you're like maybe leaning toward universalism and thinking, well, they're unable to exercise personal faith. The problem is we know from previous sermons that they have been condemned or found guilty by God because of numerous things, just using Romans, Romans 1.20. They have the, and we talked about this, so I don't want to review too much, but I just don't want anyone leaving thinking that I'm talking about adults mentally capable of believing being saved simply because they haven't heard the gospel. Because we know that these individuals are still found guilty before God. They do not have the innocence that children do. While children cannot choose between good and evil, these adults can. They have the revelation of God in creation, Romans 1.20, causing them to be guilty because they deny the creator. And then in Romans 2, they have consciences telling them good from evil, accusing and excusing their actions, yet they still go against their conscience, which serves, I think it's Romans 2.14, serves as a law for them as much as the, their conscience serves as a law for them as Gentiles, as much as the Mosaic law served as a law for Jews, allowing them to be equally guilty or condemned before God and only able to be saved by faith, a faith that comes from hearing the gospel. If you have any questions about this, as I do know that this could introduce some confusing thoughts, please be sure to come and see me after the sermon. And don't, I'm not wrapping up right yet. I just want to be clear that I'd love the opportunity to talk to you so that nobody leaves with any confusion about this. Now, I do want to con conclude with this. We entered a difficult area because we know people are saved by faith and we know babies go to heaven if they die. But we are not told how babies get to heaven without exercising personal faith. So I've tried to do the best I can with this. And I want to be, I want to be perfectly clear. If I've been wrong at all in this sermon about how this happens, how babies go to heaven without exercising personal faith, it still does not change the larger, I would say, more important truth that babies do go to heaven. Even if I can't tell you, or even if you disagree with me about how babies get to go to heaven without saving faith, I don't think we can argue that babies don't go to heaven when they perish. 
And so I hope that that's the truth that encourages you if you lost a baby, and I hope it equips you to encourage others, especially if they lose a baby. And now I will conclude with this. Did I say that earlier that I was concluding? I'm sorry if I did. Now I'm really concluding. I've been talking about Jesus dying for the sins of the world and God mercifully applying that sacrifice to people who can't exercise saving faith. But God does not apply that sacrifice to people who can believe but don't. Matthew 25, 46, the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God held the unrighteous accountable for not exercising faith in Christ, and he held them accountable by sending them to hell. The righteousness that's needed is not a works-based righteousness. It is a righteousness that is available by faith. Romans 3, 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, which is even another verse that argues that for those unable because of mental inhibitions, whether their age being babies or not, would be unaccountable. Now, God expects those who can believe in Christ to do so, and when they do, he gives us Christ's righteousness, which is what's necessary to go to heaven. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth it reveals. I feel like in this sermon we entered into an area that was, is somewhat veiled. I, I tried to do my best, I'm sure, in, a very, in an imperfect and flawed way. And so I just ask, Lord, that whatever I've preached this morning that is true and faithful to your word, would bear witness to your people in any areas that I've rightly divided, and by, by your grace, I pray that that would be everything that I said this morning, rightly divided your word, and I pray the entire sermon would bear witness to your people. But knowing that I'm, I'm flawed, Lord, and imperfect, should I have said anything that is not compatible with Scripture, is not truthful, would be another way to say it, Lord, then I pray that it would be disregarded by your people. But I would ask this as we come, come toward the end of this series, that assuming babies go to heaven when they die, which I do believe something is not something Scripture is silent about, but I believe is overwhelmingly clear based on this, the sermons that I've, I've preached, the truths you've revealed through those verses, then I pray, Lord, we can all be comforted and encouraged by that beautiful reality that as painful as it is to lose a child, that those children do immediately find themselves in your presence and help us to be able to encourage others with that same truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.